Hello and welcome. My name is Raj Basord. I'm a consultant psychiatrist based in uh, Harley Street in central London. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Walter Longo. Uh, Dr. Walter is um, currently a professor of biogenterology and director of the Longevity Institute in the School of Gerontology at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. And I'm delighted to be talking to him today about a new book that's just coming out in Britain called The Longevity Diet. So, Dr. Walter Longo, um, the longevity diet, many people think about diets as things where people lose weight, they tr they're trying to lose weight. Your longevity diet is about something completely different. You're introducing some new ideas about what it is to be healthy, what it is to be fit, what it is to, to lead a long life. But in particular, the idea that if you eat the right food, you can end up being young for a much longer time than people may have previously suspected. Yes, yeah, so the, the longevity diet book is really um, the result of uh, over 25 years of research in my lab. And of course, I'm not just talking about my own work, but, but the work of, of many of us. And, and in the early 90s, we really started thinking about treating aging versus treating diseases. Um, and, uh, and this book, um, half of it is about every day. What do you do every day to treat aging? And then the other half is, uh, can you actually activate um, programs that are inside the body so that the body can fix itself? And so if you cut yourself, uh, the body is very good at wound healing. Uh, but what about the inside? Is it possible that the liver, the pancreas, and all these different organs don't really have a way to detect damage um, and, and fix themselves? And so. Uh, the half of the book is, is about this, um, our discoveries of these periodic fasting diets, fasting mimicking diets that can uh, uh, set, uh, reset the body uh, and, and, and activate a repair mode. But there's a much bigger idea here, isn't there, that medicine before had thought of diseases as kind of random things that come along and seem to accumulate once you get past the age of 50, let's say. You're saying it's no accident that people seem to get iller or get more diseases. What's really going on is a bigger overarching theme, which is we're getting older. And a lot of diseases are linked basically to old age. And you feel that the correct treatment is actually to treat this aging process rather than treat in each individual disease. Yeah, actually, um, now, I mean, we, we do say treat aging, but really in the book I talk about a concept called juventology, which I coined as, as juventology, so the study of youth. And so much more important than treating aging. Uh, and if you think about it, for example, if you think of a car, you could say the, the uh, treat aging would be like making sure that the tires don't get worn out, right? And a juventology approach will say, well, it's okay if they get worn out, I'm just going to replace them uh, once they're worn out. And now you have new tires, right? So it's a very different concept. And that's really the focus of the book. How do you stay young? Uh, and so treat aging in the sense of postpone aging uh, more, than, more than make it go slower. Now, this idea that we can stay young for longer, partly, ironically enough, starts with you and your childhood. You were brought up in a particular part of southern Italy, which turns out to have more um, centenarians, people who've reached to 100, and people who look really young but in fact are incredibly old than any other part of the world. Is that right? Yes, uh, a very weird coincidence that um, the, the little town of 2,000 people where my parents are from turned out to be have one of, turned out to have one of the highest prevalences 
of centenarians in the world, at least uh, uh, up to a few years ago. But uh, to this day, it still has extremely high. There's still about two centenarians alive, two to three uh, per 2,000 people, which is still among the highest in the planet. And there's an ancient fountain in the middle of the village, which has kind of got the nickname of the Fountain of Youth. People think that if you drink from it, you, you may live forever. Yeah, I actually came up with that. So um, <laughs> I, um, uh, I mean, Salvatore Caruso, who actually saw me grow up, um, that was the fountain that he drank from, that I drank from when I was growing up there. And, um, and I just, uh, I mean, I remember that there was a fountain that uh, everybody drank from uh, all the time. I mean, if you wanted to go get a drink, that's where you went. You know, there was no bottle of water and, and that was it, right? So um, now in some other towns in, uh, I mean, we don't know, but in some other towns of, of Italy, it turns out that uh, we suspect that maybe the water is in fact containing some, some minerals, we don't know uh, for sure yet, that may in fact contribute to the, to the uh, lifespan. And, um, and so anyways, we don't know about the, that particular phantom, but certainly it's tempting to say that maybe it contains something that allowed these, uh, these uh, people in the town to be so long-lived and also so healthy, you know, they're not just long-lived. It's striking that the majority, when, when I went and interviewed them, the majority still had you know, very good memory, they still were functional, so really remarkable. All these centenarians, fully functional. But that leads on to the idea that maybe it's something about the diet, the famous Mediterranean diet, or the diet in that part of Italy, um, that seems to be contributing in a major way to their, their longevity and their youthfulness well into old age. Yeah, uh, so the, uh, I don't know there is so much Mediterranean diet, because in the book I talk about Okinawa and Loma Linda and all these areas around the world that, um, that don't have any to do, anything to do with... Uh, uh, the Mediterranean, but they're, they're as good as the Mediterranean, uh, or, or better. Uh, so this is a particular diet, and, and it's a, uh, mostly vegan, low-protein, pescatarian diet, so some fish once in a while, and, um, and there's a, a lot of details about it that are very important. For example, lots of olive oil all the time, uh, nuts consumption, nut consumption very frequently. Um, if uh, milk was, uh, if they drink milk, usually it's goat milk or goat yogurt. Uh, so I think all these things together, uh, not necessarily having to do with the Mediterranean diet, uh, certainly help them uh, get to regular longevity. But you're also arguing in the book that the secret for longevity, whatever it is, is going to be a complicated thing. It's not going to just be one thing. And you talk about these famous five pillars on which you should found the basis of your ideas of longevity. And most people are coming up with erroneous ideas or erroneous diets because they're just using one of the five pillars. Yes. Yeah, so a lot of what you hear now, uh, sadly enough, is comes from maybe one pillar or even less than that. So, for example... You see all these high-protein diets, and a lot of them come from short clinical trials. They might last three or four months, showing that somebody can lose some weight doing it. And that's a half a pillar, you know, and the pillar being clinical trials, but they're short clinical trials. You're not really following somebody for five, 10 years. You're following for three months, and then you publish. And then everybody jumps on that diet. Um, in the book, I talk about epidemiology, 
so studies of large populations, randomized clinical trials, uh, basic science. So, you know, what about a mouse? Um, what about a simple organism? What kind of diet is going to make the organism live longer? And then centenarians, you know, what do, if you look around the world, um, what people, uh, if you come up with a diet that you think is so good, uh, then you should be able to say lots of people that have very successful longevity, healthy, long lives, they should adapt that, that, that particular diet. If you don't see it, you got a problem. Uh, and then the final pillar is complex systems. What about a car? You know, and, and again, as I was saying earlier, I always like to go to the tires or the engine and think of, of something that is a complex system that we know everything about. Why is that? Because it's a reductionist approach, right? If you make it into a, a system that is so simple or simple, complex, but simple at the same time because you built it, it allows you to really understand some things that you wouldn't otherwise understand with a system that is unknown or like the human body has a lot of unknown components. Okay, so let's get to the longevity diet. What is the longevity diet? So the longevity diet is really um, all you do nutrition-wise uh, to live longer and half of it is about um, everyday diet and the other half is about this periodic fasting mimicking diet. So together they represent the, the longevity diet. And, uh, and as I was saying earlier, um, vegan, lots of legumes, lots of beans, lots of uh, peas and, and uh, chickpeas, etc. And that's where most of the protein should come from. And then uh, lots of vegetables, not so much fruit, differently from the idea of the Mediterranean diet. And different from the Mediterranean diet, not so much starches, so not so much pasta, bread, bread, rice, but lots of carbohydrates. So it's a high carbohydrate, low starch, low sugar diet, right? And a lot of people confuse, they, they, um, they talk about low carb, but what they don't know is that they're really talking about low sugar, low starches. It's, and, and, and there is nothing, no evidence going against good carbohydrate coming from, again, legumes and, and, and vegetables. Um, so it's a 60-30-10, 60% of the carbohydrate that I just described with low sugar and some starches. It's good to have starches because, uh, say, 40-50 grams a day of pasta, bread, etc., and maybe even a little bit more, it makes the diet pleasant. And that's really important. When you go around the world and talk to the centenarians, um, they all adapt this type of diets and they enjoy it. And in most cases, they have either rice or they have the pasta or they have the bread. You know? So they have some form of that. And I think that that's a mistake also to uh, remove all of these things from people because eventually they're going to drop out of it. They're going to do it for a while and then they're going to say, this is not sustainable for me. And however ideal they might be, whatever you get them to eat, it's not going to work. Eventually they'll drop it. So that's the first half of the diet. And the second half is uh, is the fasting-making diet. And this is uh, something that we developed in the lab. And it's basically a, a diet that's got about 40% uh, of the normal calories. So you're restricted in calories. But you do this for five days, maybe once every three to four months on average. And the idea is that um, you eat, but it's like you're fasting with water only. So the, each ingredient is selected to fool the system into thinking it's fasting. Um, and uh, that's why it's a fasting-making diet. And now the, the effects are, are uh, 
uh, tremendous. Uh, we, we've done a clinical trial on, on that. And uh, well, we've done several trials, but one on healthy people and several on, on cancer patients and uh, multiple sclerosis, etc. And so, yeah, so we keep uh, testing this. Yeah. But we've heard about fasting before. Fasting is kind of like trendy at the moment. But you mean fasting in a very different and more specific sense, I think. Well, I mean, you know, um, I, I think that um, it's interesting that people now think that fasting is trending because uh, we've been doing it for a long time. And, and for the longest time, people thought it was the joke, you know, and that now it's trending. Um, but, uh, you know, 10 years ago, most doctors will have told you that fasting is just a very bad idea. You shouldn't do it. Um, and, uh, you know, with the work of, that we've done and, and, and some others, a few others, I think we've been able to really turn the, the, the field around. Uh, and I think a lot of it had to do with uh, doing clinical trials and doing the science that was missing. for So for the longest time, the medical community was against it because they didn't see any data that would support its validity. And, um, and so, yeah, so now it's a time to, maybe first time in history where because is being taken seriously and has been approached in a systematic way, uh, we might finally be able to introduce it to the medical uh, community. Now we have uh, over maybe 5,000 doctors all over the world that, that recommend the fasting-making diets. And, uh, um, and, and so um, we think that, that that's going to be a reality soon enough, an alternative to drugs. Now, fasting has been around for, of course, thousands of years, millions of years, if you consider other organisms, or actually billions of years, if you consider you know, bacteria. And um, so we know, we know that um, fasting is beneficial, but this knowledge is only maybe 25 years old. You know, before that, uh, I think that uh, most people will have thought that fasting is mostly damaging for you. Yeah. What's the biology behind this, though? Why is fasting good for you? Why does fasting help you stay young? And why are you using f fasting in cancer patients, for example? Yeah, so fasting, like, like many other interventions, can be good or bad. Right? Depends how you do it, depends who you do it on, um, and depends um, the, um, the type of fasting that you do. And so if it's done correctly, like for example, you know, a water-only fasting should be done only in a clinic uh, with medical supervision. And, uh, and a water-only fasting may be very extreme for, for a lot of patients. Um, instead, if you have a certain number of calories, 800, say, and above, and you keep it to only five days, they can be very beneficial. So, for example, now in our cancer trials, we're doing a four-day uh, low, very low-calorie uh, fasting-making diet, and the uh, initial results are very positive. So we're showing... Um, uh, meaning the mouse results are, are clearly fantastic, but the human ones are positive and they're showing protection of the patients against uh, chemotherapy side effects, for example. Uh, now we're hoping that uh, in cancer it will also make it worse for the cancer cells, so protect the patient and make it worse for the cancer cells. Um, we're doing uh, trials on multiple sclerosis. We've completed one uh, showing some promising effects on uh, reduction of uh, um, improvement in quality of life in, in multiple sclerosis patients. Um, we um, finished a trial on people that are, uh, including people that were pre-diabetic, 
people with risk factors for cardiovascular disease, di diabetes, uh, cancer, etc. So uh, it, it's really acting in many different systems. And the reason for that is that it's really um, getting rid of damaged components of cells and cells, uh, turning on stem cells, replacing bad cells with good cells. I mean, that we think is really at the center of the effects of fasting. Culturally, um, for, for thousands of years, uh, religions have advocated fasting. But most religions seem to have a period of time when people fast. Do you think there's a link between that and your advocacy of fasting as being helpful, that historically people came upon fasting and put it into their religions as, as actually something that was good for them in the long run? Probably. If you look at uh, the history of fasting, you don't really see much talk about health. Uh, it, it was more of a sacrifice and something that you had to do because it was a good thing to do. Um, and uh, it kind of like a prayer, right? It, 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 there is not necessarily a physical uh, health purpose, but it's something that you do for religious purposes. It is possible that the, the, some of the initiators, the, 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 the ones that, the, that started the, uh, telling uh, um, the, the people to, to fast were doing also for health. I mean, they understood there were some health benefits um, and that's why they did it. But I couldn't find any evidence for that. I mean, I couldn't find some something that said, uh, you know, this uh, um, priest uh, started this in, in, in 300 uh, um, AD to, for this purpose, you know, because he knew that people were getting overweight and he wanted to, to take care of that. I mean, I, I couldn't find that, but it's possible. But, I mean, in the modern era where food is plentiful, people have to make a decision to fast. Before the modern era, back before civilization began, people were forced to fast, weren't they? Because food supply was a little bit intermittent. Yes. So there is no doubt that all organisms had no choice but to starve or fast for probably long periods, and, and it was just a matter of time before you were faced with uh, weeks of, of no food. Yeah. And uh, now, what we start suspecting now is that it, it may have been there, it may have uh, had a purpose, so that um, as for sleep, having a couple of weeks of fasting, whether it was imposed or not, uh, or when it was imposed, um, it was used by the body to reset itself, right? So eventually, um, we we got away from it, and um, and that could be, uh, and that's probably the first time in history, let's say in the last hundred years, that we got away from being forced to fast once in a while, and uh, and so you know this epidemic of obesity and and uh, many many other problems could very well be influenced, if nothing else, by this uh, um, getting away from our fundamentals. Um, as you, you can imagine how problematic it would be if we get rid of uh, sleeping. Now, when you mention fasting to people, they, they want to run screaming from the room because they imagine something very stressful and they imagine feeling very hungry for long periods of time. There is something about your particular diet that kind of tackles that issue of people feeling hungry. Yeah, so the, the, our purpose from the very beginning was, or at least my purpose was to not just have an idea that we test in the lab, 
but have something that the doctors worldwide, and not just doctors, also dietitians, if you're thinking about somebody relatively healthy, um, they could do and, and they could say, you know, I'm not, I'm not an expert necessarily on this, but here it is, take this, do it for four, five, seven days, uh, and, uh, and these are the expected effects, right? And um, yeah, so then uh, this fasting mimicking diet, uh, we try to make it as feasible as possible. So with, let's say, soups and you have the breakfast, you have the lunch, you have the dinner. Of course, it's nothing like your normal breakfast, lunch and dinner, but it, it maintains some of the basic concepts. So in the morning, you might have a bar uh, made of nuts mostly and then a tea. Uh, and then, you know, for lunch, you'll have a soup and maybe some crackers and dinner. You might have another bar and, and I mean, you might have another soup and then or a broth and, and some um, and some uh, additional bar. So it just keeps you busy. And um, and also, of course, its job is to nourish you and avoid uh, um, the um, and try to give you some treats to to keep you uh, happy. So there is quite a lot of psychology involved in helping people stick to fasting. Yeah, there is a, a, a lot of, I, I would say, I mean, I've done fasting with water only, and I've done fasting with these fasting-making diets, and of course I'm biased, but, but um, I mean, I, I could barely uh, handle the, um, the water-only fasting. It's extremely difficult. And I think the most difficult thing is the concept that for five days you're going to miss the ritual of enjoying food and, and just sitting down and having uh, different things. So I think most people understand that they can have very different meals. Like if you travel to a different country, um, you for five days, most people can say, I can have whatever they have in that country, right? And that could be as difficult as doing the fasting making that. I would say if you, if you travel to, if you've never gone to China and you go to central China, and you never eaten the food of the people in central China eat, uh, you may struggle. And uh, but you're probably okay. Say, well, for five days I can do it. You wouldn't do it for two months, but you can do it for five days. And that's the idea of the fasting. Meaning that is difficult, but difficult as it would be if you travel to a foreign country and they had very very different food from what you used to have. So you've gone five days with eating nothing but drinking water. Yes. And what happened? I still remember every moment of it, you know, and I particularly remember um, watching people eating uh, while I had absolutely nothing. And, uh, and that is very, very difficult uh, for someone, somebody to do. I mean, it's okay, I survived, but, uh, um, but I, it was so stressful that I said, I'm never going to do this again. So you've only done it once? Water only, I've only done it once. Yeah. Okay. And what, of course, you know, fasting making diet, I do it twice a year. Yeah. Okay. But what were, the, what were the benefits that you noticed from the water only one? Or were there no benefits? I mean, you know, I, of course, I, I lost weight. I've, I've lost uh, some, you know, ab abdominal uh, fat. And um, yeah, so I mean, water only fat, uh, work, works, um, but it also pushes you to, to the limit. And, um, and the limit, let's say, in a in a summer day could be hypotension, hypoglycemia, and all kinds of other problems that, uh, besides the psychological stress, but also, um, you know, some of your um, blood markers may get to levels that, that are dangerous. You know. 
What about this other fasting diet that's very trendy at the moment, particularly here in the UK? Is it called the 5-2 diet or something like that? Have you heard of that diet? And what are your thoughts about yeah, it? Yeah, I've heard of that diet. In fact, I was with Michelle Harvey today in Cambridge. And Michelle is the one that came up with the diet and that was made famous by uh, Michael Mosley. And um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a very good uh, uh, diet. Um, but of course, it's something that you need to do every third day, right? So uh, it, it reminds me a lot of calorie restriction of something that you have to do every day. Calorie restriction refers to eating 30% less every day. And um, what we knew from Roy Walford, who was my mentor uh, many years ago at UCLA, is that eventually people uh, can't do it and eventually people struggle with it. And, um, and also you see side effects. And now, you know, I don't know, I don't do work long-term on the 5-2. So Michelle and others will have to figure out um, who can do it, who cannot, and, um, and then figure out also, are there issues, for example, with the circadian clocks? Uh, meaning that uh, the, the body likes to have meals at the same time all the time. So if twice a week, you completely change. Now, I think Michelle, does something different from Mosley, which is uh, uh, do two consecutive days. That's probably better because you just have a break of two days uh, every week and then you go back. But if you keep changing the day and you alternate and you say do Wednesday and then Friday you do 500 calories, then that's what the 5-2 refers to. Um, then the concern is that you're getting metabolic jet lag and the body is getting confused about when it's time to sleep, when it's not time to sleep, and when it's time to, to activate certain metabolic pathways or not. Well, we're running out of time. It's been a delight talking to you, but one or two other very quick questions. The, the diet is actually called the fasting mimicking diet. So you're kind of emphasizing this is going to create the effects, the beneficial effects of actually fasting, but it mimics fasting. You're not actually doing the full fasting thing like you did when you just drank water for five days. Yeah, so you're not doing fasting at all. You're eating regular meals four times a day, and um, and uh, you know, and we also try to make uh, the whatever we put in the fasting making diet uh, as uh, normal as possible, uh, as familiar as possible to people, and uh, and also as filling as possible. So, so I would say I think over twenty five thousand people now have done the fasting making diet, followed by either a doctor or a dietitian. And um, very few people, uh, we have seen very little non-compliance or people not being able to, to finish it. And, and also the beauty of this is, of course, it, 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 you don't need to do it in any particular, this is not intermittent fasting, right? This you could do it in January, and then you, even though your doctor may tell you you need to do it again in May, you may say, look, I can't in May, I'm too busy, it's not the right moment, do it in June, do it in July, that's okay. And that's also very important. You know, I feel like it, to, for people to feel like they, they can do it at their own, at their own pace, uh, even though it is recommended based on, on, on whether you're obese or not and whether you have risk factors like high cholesterol, high blood pressure, et cetera, or not. A couple of very final questions. One of the catchphrases in your book is eat foods from your ancestry. What does that mean? Well, it means that take lactose, for example. Um, so if your ancestors are from Norway, uh, you most likely can drink milk as an adult. If your ancestors are from Japan or Sicily, most likely uh, you're going to suffer 
if you uh, drink milk as an adult and your grandparents didn't and uh, because they were also lactose intolerant and they figured out that lact- milk is not a good thing so i think in general we hear about curcumin and quinoa and kale and you know and of course you know some some grandparents did eat these foods but a lot of most grandparents didn't and so i think it's good to say well once in a while you can probably have it but try not to uh, get in the habit of making your diet all about food food components that were not part of uh, your uh, the history of your land and what your grandparents uh, used to eat because it's just a matter of time as we've seen for gluten for example gluten levels used to be relatively low and the consumption also of gluten containing food was relatively low historically people ate a lot of vegetables and not that many starches containing high levels of gluten now you have very high levels of gluten and very high levels of the food that contain gluten. And so the combination is probably now responsible for this uh, uh, gluten intolerance that you see all over the, the, the Western world. So one final question. Um, you mentioned at the beginning of the book, uh, meeting, I think you met them, two very, very old people. One person held, held a record, I think, for being the oldest person in the world. And this is in southern Italy where you were brought up. And, and they, they were, one of them nearly got to 120, I think. And one of them got to 117, is that right? Something like yes, that? Emma Morano got, uh, she was from northern Italy, actually, Lago Maggiore, and she got to 117. She was the oldest in the world and also the oldest of the, in the history of Italy. Mm-hmm. So there was, and the third oldest in the history of the planet. So it was great. I followed her for about five years. And um, it was uh, a, a great experience because you also, I realized things that I didn't really think about before, uh, spending more time in the hospital and in the lab, which was, the, for example, the importance of the doctor, right? The fact that this doctor made some decisions that were really remarkable. For example, at maybe age 95, he got her to eat 100 to 150 grams of raw red meat every day. And, and when people hear this, and she was also eating three eggs a day, and people hear this and say, oh, well, well, why are you saying then a vegan pescatarian diet? And they don't understand there are different phases of life. If you get the 95, the nourishment is way more important than cancer prevention. And, uh, uh, and it's also much less likely that she's going to get cancer from red meat than when she's uh, uh, 52. Um, so, so I think that's um, you know that that was very important also to to understand that aspect of uh, uh, the doctor, but also how the doctor monitor very closely, thinking very much about let, let's make sure she has everything she needs from a nourishing perspective, because that's probably at age 95 one of the most important things. And she could have died several times if it wasn't uh, if if this Carlo Baba her her medical doctor was not around, paying close attention. But she was also quite youthful, I thought you said. She was quite youthful, and uh, she was fairly independent up to a couple of years before, until she was like 114, 115. Uh, she mostly lived alone. She could still cook and, and, and or do some cooking. She, until the very end, she ate on her own. She did not have to be fed. So it's remarkable that to get to 117. In, the, in those conditions. And, um, and yeah, so the book really talks about um, if everybody follow all the, all the tools, uh, is it possible that we all get to eventually to 110 years of age, average lifespan? Uh, some people die earlier, some people die later. 
So it's possible. And, you know, we already have examples of people that got there. So I think it's definitely doable. So I, I want to stick with this point right at the end because I think it's really quite a remarkable idea. You really believe actually following the right diet, doing all the right things, the natural lifespan of uh, the human being might turn out to be 110. I mean, I thought you mentioned 120 would be pretty viable for large numbers of people, but 110 being the average. Yeah, 120, um, there will be a lot of people that reach that, mm. uh, but average is a very different story. Yeah. And, and so Still, 110 is not bad. Yeah, 110. Uh, but the point you're making, 110, is in a youthful way. That's the point you're making. There's no point being 110 I mean, in a very elderly way. It wouldn't necessarily be in a youthful way, but uh, but let's say you know up to 95, 97, 98 in a relatively youthful way, mm. and then the last 10 years uh, still relatively healthy. Salvatore Caruso was uh, uh, one of the oldest men in the world when I um, yeah, up to when he died in 2015. He was uh, fairly independent. He got up every day. He watched TV. He went you know, walked around. Uh, when journalists came around, he would come out and go in the fields and that uh, stand for hours uh, with pictures of him being taken. So I mean, it was he wasn't useful, but uh, he was uh, he was very. He remembered everything. He was he was happy to see the journalist. It was a good life, you know. It wasn't. You would not have said. Oh, you know, you'd be better off uh, dying. Uh, everybody was like hoping that he would go another five years, you know, or ten. Well, Dr. Volta Longo, it's been a delight talking to you. The name of the book, The Longevity Diet, uh, Discover the New Science to Slow Aging, Fight Disease and Manage Your Weight. At the top of the book is the other title featuring the five-day fasting mimicking diet, all the health benefits of fasting without the hunger. Published by Penguin, it's an international bestseller. Uh, Dr. Volta Longo, thank you very much indeed. <laughs>